Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. Hello, today I'm with Patrick Grant and we're chatting about workplace happiness at the Goring Hotel in London uh, over coffee and orange juice. And as you will uh, all know, Patrick uh, is a very great uh, fashion designer, uh, has set up his own tailoring businesses, and he's also a TV uh, presenter and personality uh, appearing on the Great British Sewing Bee. So, Patrick, uh, good morning. Uh, It's very nice to have you here with me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me along. And, Patrick, do you just want to start off uh, by talking us through your career, where you started in work, (laughs) and how you got to own... Uh, a number now of different um, tailoring fashion businesses. Um, I I was born and raised in Edinburgh. Um, I was uh, originally I, I studied material science and engineering at university. I went not, to not fashion. Not not fashion. Um, I worked in uh, in in engineering and technology for almost a decade for uh, three very big international engineering and technology businesses. Um, and what did you do with them? I, I worked mostly on the, the business development side. So I, um, I, I was running, I was very, 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 very fortunate to be running interesting bits of businesses all across the world. The first company I worked for was a company called, at the time it was called BICC, which was a big engineering and construction company. Half of the business was Balfour Beatty, which is still there. The other half was uh, was originally called British Insulated Calendared Cables, which was a big manufacturer of industrial cables. So we made giant power cables and telecoms cables, the stuff that ran under the sea all the way down to the little, you know, Cat5 cables that run around the houses. And, and twin copper drop wires that spanned half of Africa and the Indian subcontinent. And I worked... Um, First year I worked in, 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 in South Asia and Southern Africa, doing projects in you know, Zimbabwe and Botswana and Malawi and South Africa and the Seychelles, interestingly, um, Bangladesh. I travelled extensively over South Asia. The second year I worked almost exclusively in India. We were doing a couple of big projects uh, out there at the time and we're, we were bidding for another very big project. And then I worked for a company called Bookham Technology, which was a, 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 an incredibly successful British tech startup 
making optical devices, integrated optical devices in silicon. I had five years there, again, working globally. Having worked, obviously, for companies which were highly technical, how did you get into yeah. fashion? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd sort of played with, I'd played with the idea of going back to university and becoming an architect. So after about two odd years at, at BICC, um, I mean, I loved the job, but I wasn't sure that I loved cables. I loved the, I loved the, the science and the engineering of it, but I wasn't just, I wasn't mad about cables. Um, and... So I went back to night school and did A-level art and got a place to study architecture at Liverpool University and then sort of bottled it. Um, and then a couple of years later, I decided, oh, what am I going to do? So I, I thought I was going to be a landscape gardener. So I went off and worked for the National Trust. So and you obviously had quite a creative I had a, a, a sort of aesthetic, I mean, a very, always very strongly aesthetically driven. I was always obsessive about how things looked as well as how things were. I mean, obviously, you, you, you've got this aesthetic thing going on you don't feel that mechanical engineering is going to satisfy you for all of your life. What was the, the catalyst that made you change? Um, well, it, it, I went back to university um, in my, I think it was 31, I went back to, I, I did an MBA, um, which having, having toyed with the gardening idea, I thought, I, I don't know, something, something, isn't, something isn't working for me in what I'm doing right now. I don't know what it is. And then I read an article about MBAs, and I thought, well, why don't I just do that? I mean, I, I, it gives me an opportunity to explore all of the world of everything. Um, and where did you study your MBA? I, went, I did it at Oxford. Um, and you were there for two, two years? Two years, yeah. Um, and was and that worthwhile? Did yeah. Did you enjoy that? I loved it. I, had a, I, I, had a, I loved my undergraduate university for different reasons. I was very motivated to study... Um, I, you know, I, I went, to, I was at New College, which is an extraordinary, I mean, all of the Oxford colleges are extraordinary, um, surrounded by brilliant people, surrounded by amazing opportunities to do brilliant stuff, and I just got stuck into everything, but I also loved my studying. I had a, a extraordinary profs who were, I mean, I, I think, you know, the postgraduate teaching and undergraduate teaching is quite different. I think you get a, a much stronger level. I mean, maybe they were just better teachers. I don't know. But Leeds, I've got a great education at Leeds. I mean, Oxford's very keen to teach people how to think. You know, in fact, they say it when you, when you matriculate. It's like you're not here to learn stuff. You're learn, here to learn how to, how to think. And, you know, and you, you get a great, you get exposed to all sorts of amazing stuff. And, you know, it was two years to, to reflect on everything that, that, you know, I felt was important. And, and, but actually, what decided you know, what has been the, you know, my life since then was a complete coincidence. So uh, what happened? I was due to meet a, a, a friend of mine who stood me up for lunch. Uh, I can't remember what his excuse was, but for whatever reason, he couldn't make lunch. And I had lunch in my college dining room, and the undergraduates had nicked all the papers apart from the FT. So... I sat and had lunch by myself and read the paper. And in the back of that day's FT, there's a section called Businesses for Sale. I don't know how often it's in the paper, but I suspect it's, it's at least once a week, I imagine. In that section and on that one day only was a tiny little postage stamp-sized advert that said, For Sale, Tailor to Kings, Emperors and Presidents. 
write to Mr. N. Granger at 16 Savile Row. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I had a bit of work that I had to do, and I thought, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just write to Miss, this Mr. N. Granger and see what this is all about. So I wrote to him. There was no email address. I mean, this was in the day when there was email. But, um, and he sent me back this little memorandum of information. I thought, is it, I mean, this can, can, like, can this be a real Savile Row tailor? you know, for sale in the back of the paper. This, surely this isn't real. But it was real. I went to Norton's, and there it was, this almost 200-year-old tailoring house, a little bit dusty, a little bit kind of careworn. And I thought, well, this is, this is, this is amazing. How can... I, I bought it. Um, so how did you buy it? You say, well, I bought it. I bought it. <laughs> Where did you get I, the money from? Well, I, I was very fortunate when I moved from BICC... Well, when I moved from Corning to, to Bookham... I was able to keep hold of my house in Liverpool. And Liverpool went through this enormous regeneration. It started while I was there, and it carried on. And so my house in Liverpool went up in value quite a lot. And I, the house that I had in Oxford... So I sold my house in Liverpool. I, I used my house in Oxford as collateral for a business loan. And the, the small firm's loan guarantee scheme, which is now the EFG scheme, which is probably now something different, the government-backed... Um, you know, a government-backed loan scheme that allows businesses to, without sufficient collateral, to get themselves off the ground. So, through Lloyd's Bank, we did a we did a we did a loan, government-backed loan, and I went to friends and family, and my old boss. So, and and Bookham had just paid for my MBA, which wasn't inexpensive. <laughs> so we managed. We sort of we arranged a deal, and then Andrew. Uh, um, Andrew actually pitched in some money himself, so he still owns about 5% of Norton & Sons. But a couple of other friends, two, old, two of my very best friends from, from university, one of my best friends from prep school who remained a friend. Actually, I bumped into him at a wedding. He said, what are you up to these days? And I told him I was trying to... He's like, oh, my God. So he'd just been, got, he'd just been given a really good bonus from work, and he'd bought himself a Porsche KN, and he sold that and put it into our business. Um... You know, we've put the my granny put and, some money in, and then you we nervous at that. I mean, mortgage you know, your weirdly, house. And... I wasn't. I think I, you know, I just sort of felt like this was the right thing to be. This mm. feel like you know, this felt like the right thing. You know, I loved handcrafted stuff. I loved old brands. I loved clothes and men's style. And you know, if you sort of do a Venn diagram of that. Right in the middle is and then, Savile Row. And then when you walked in, was it a thriving business? And you thought, here we go, I'm going to make millions every year. From no, it was, it was far from it. It was, losing, it was losing a lot of money. I mean, it was losing, it was a small business, and it was, it was losing about £200,000 a year on a very small... T- I mean, the turnover wasn't much more than 200000 It was losing. I mean, it was, it was in a pretty parlous state. And uh, we were never... Never more than about a week away from running out of money, ever, in the you know entire periods. You have to just let this stuff go and 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 be hopeful. You have to, you know. I was always somebody will walk in the door. Somebody would always, you know. And at times, you know, you'd be down to your last penny and be thinking, well, that's it. I can't pay the vat. I can't pay the tailors this week, you know. And somebody walks through the door and gives you a twenty thousand pound deposit on a nice order, and everything's fine again. So. You know, it's, it's, it, is, it is difficult running a small business and you, you have to just be, you can't, do, you can't do it and not be an optimist. I mean, how would you describe your 
customer base? I mean, they must be quite wealthy, obviously. Most of them are pretty wealthy, but most of them are lovely people. They're mostly men. Most of them are lovely men. And it's partly because I think we, we, you know, if you come to Norton and Sons, it's a sort of oasis of calm. You know, it's a, it's a sort of, quite deliberately, a technology-free area. It's an area where, you know, men who love clothes can talk about clothes in an atmosphere where no one's going to... We all love clothes, so they, they come and they'll just chat about clothing and cloth and stuff. And it's, you know, and, and, and funny enough, I was interviewing somebody for a job yesterday... And we were talking about exactly this, you know, this, you know, part, we, you know what we, we, we obviously make clothes, but we also offer time in a place that is quite different from what most of these men spend their lives in, which is, you know, permanently attached to a device, permanently making, you know, very difficult decisions and doing very high-powered stuff. And we offer a sort of tranquil, calm place where they can just exercise their kind of whim and, and, and enjoy being in the company of real experts because all of my staff are incredibly uh, experienced and talented and you know, extraordinary craftspeople and, and, but also wonderfully knowledgeable about everything that surrounds our craft, you know, the, you know, the history of clothing, the history of cloth making, all of these things that, that form a part of what we do. And we want to create a nice atmosphere for everyone that's in there. And it's, in, it's incredibly important that the workshop is happy. Because I think, you know, if you come into Norton & Sons, you walk into our shop. Next stage, you walk into a fitting room, and then through that door is the workshop. And the doors are open, and, and you can see into the workshop from the shop. If you're, obviously, if you're in the fitting room, you can hear all of the conversation that's happening in the workshop. And... You know, you, you know when you walk into a workplace and it feels happy. And you know, you know, there's a sort of chirpiness. And, the, you know, you, I mean, I don't know. We're, human beings are very good at sensing when things aren't right and also good at sensing when things are right. And um, it's take, it took me a long time to, to get the, you know, the workshop to be a happy place. And now that it is, How I'm delighted. Do do well... I mean, it's personalities. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's... I first of all tried to do it by sort of setting a good example. But you do it by, you know, hiring chirpy, happy people. So you, and, and so in terms of the types that you're trying to uh, recruit, technically you need to be highly skilled. Mm -hmm. uh, need to be good at small talk and conversation to build relationships. Yeah. Um, need to be able to hold a secret in confidentiality. How, how about team players? Are these yeah. sort of individuals with big egos? Because we all imagine the fashion world as being Karl Lagerfeld and Vivian Westwood and these massive characters. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've named a couple of corkers there. <laughs> um, I mean, the fashion world... Is, I mean, the funny thing is I do sit across both worlds because I work in the fashion world as well as working in the tailoring world. And it's sort of... Tailoring seems slightly divorced, even though we do work with big designers. We make pieces for the catwalk for a number of designers, um, very celebrated British designers. Um, and, yes, I mean, the fashion world is full of, of, of divas. And there are some divas amongst the head cutters on Savile Row and again, I, I try and avoid, you know, I, my personal view is those, those characters are, are not the characters that, that I want in my house. Why? Um, well, because I, I want 
I want the... Yeah, firstly, I want the atmosphere to be one that's really convivial, but I also want the customer to be listened to, absolutely. I've had in the past a head cutter who was technically exceptional, but his ego was, was, was too big. And so, you know, I mean, I still sort of cry at the loss of two of potentially the best customers we could ever have had, two young Middle Eastern princes who both had a, a, a clear idea of what they wanted from their from their tailor, and it didn't marry with what our head cutter saw as, you know, the, 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 the output of his work. And so we lost them. I mean, we, you know, I think the first order that one of them gave us was for 12 suits for the summer. And I got on great with him, but he came to, he said, I can't work with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't listen to me. And, and you know, and I, I, I've, I've, I've had several head cutters over the 14 years that I've been there, and it's a crucially important position because, you know, you have to listen. I, I believe you have to listen to the customer. So I do want somebody that is comfortable enough in their own craft mm. that that they don't feel they have to impose that on other people, mm. um, and you know, and that they they see it as exos- an, you know an exercising of their skill that they can be flexible. Mm. I think that's important. So, you know, it is a, and, and, and you asked about being a team player, and I think, again, that is absolutely necessary. They need, to be, they need to be in charge because, you know, there are tailors who will, you know, who, who if they can get away with underperforming, you know, through whatever, for whatever reason, you know, might, will try and do that. And I think, you know, the head cutter needs to, you know, needs to be, unrelenting in his pursuit of excellence within the workroom. You know, you, he has to uphold standards of make. You know, every garment that goes out needs to be exceptionally produced. But there is a sort of unofficial pecking order that, that you know, I'm the best coat maker on Savile Row. There's a sort of, there's a kind of hierarchy of coat makers and the, the best ones sort of know who they are. And there's a, you know, there's a tendency towards a certain amount of diva-ishness there as well. And the cutter has to be able to you know, overcome all of that. So, and so people listening to this in the business world will be um, fascinated by the fact that you're saying that you might not take on a genius, gifted, technically brilliant cutter simply because they're not a good team player or they might not be discreet. And so in the end, those considerations are almost going to outweigh somebody who is a genius. I think you can you can be the absolutely best cutter in the world, but if you don't have the right skills to get the best out of the tailoring team that are executing your, you know, your your orders, your pattern, then you're not going to get a great result. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would always take somebody, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm looking for for, for all of these things. Patrick, what do you most love about the fashion world? Well, I love lots about the fashion world, but I mean, I think ultimately what drew me into clothes in the first place, I mean, I like, I like the idea of, of style, but, you know, I've always also been a, a, a obsessive about the quality of the things that I buy. So I used to like brands as a kid. I used to, you know, rather than buying 10 bits of clothing a year, I'd buy one really nice thing that I'd saved up for. Um, and I'd buy a lot of second-hand stuff. I'd spend you know, weekends scouring the charity shops and second-hand shops. 
There are lots of them in, in Edinburgh. And there was lots of good stuff in them, too. I was obsessed with the, the quality of things. And, I, you know, I, funnily enough, I didn't, I didn't study fashion. I studied material science and engineering. And I've always been obsessed with what things are made from and how they age and, and how they perform during their use. And, and I think that it's that side of clothing. You know, that, that, what, that was one of the really big things that drew me in. I've always loved beautiful fabrics. Most of the clothing that most people buy today is it's rubbish. And most people have no idea what it feels like to wear a piece of clothing that gets better with time. And, and all clothing should get better with time. Because I believe, especially now that the world is going mad about plastics, that natural materials are better than anything that man has created. We created man-made fibres in the 50s and 60s just to make it cheaper. We didn't create it to make it better. And what we're now finding 70 years on is all that plastic fibre that we've created is actually a massive bloody problem. But I loved clothes because, you know, good things get better with age. And, you know, everything we do at Norton's, at Etort's, even at Hammond & Co., certainly at Community Clothing, and the reason why I bought the Cookson & Clegg factory in Blackburn was because I believe passionately that every piece of clothing needs to be really, really good. And the way we deal with everything else that is a big problem in the fashion world now, you know, sustainability, ethics, everything, is by buying fewer things and by buying better things that are going to last a really long time. And well, that's someone, the antithesis of the fashion. It is. And this is the really big problem that fashion faces. Essentially, fashion needs to end. We've, we've now worked out that we can't consume stuff in this way and have a planet that isn't wrecked. Clothing and fashion used to make people happy. You know, we, it used to, a long time ago, well, a century ago, fashion was something that only rich people could indulge in. Fast fashion started really in the 60s and 70s. It's not a modern phenomenon, um, but it's gone far too far. And it's, you know, it is now, we consume... So, so how do we stop it? How do, well, what would you do now we, to try and... I mean, what I would do is I would ban plastic clothing for a start. I would just ban all synthetics, and that would... That would anyway, everyone, you know, but, but you know, then you have to deal with the problem of, of very intensively farmed cotton. Then you'd have to... I mean, we're in a position where we, we, have, to, we have to find... We have to, we have to get to the root of why people buy new clothes all the time, and that is getting to the root of people's happiness. Mm. And if we find alternative ways to make people happy, then maybe they won't feel the need to buy so much stuff. Because we consume, you know, we're consuming in this mad frenzy. I mean, if we look at how much clothing, clothing, clothing has got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over the last 50 years, to the point where, you know, you can buy a dress for a fiver. I mean, the coffee and orange juice that we're drinking this morning is probably more expensive than some pe- the items of clothing that people are buying. So people buy them with no care whatsoever. They have become completely valueless purchases. And I don't think they make people happy for very long. Mm-hmm. You know, you buy it, you wear it. You don't feel happy the second time you wear it anymore. We've got mad statistics that you know, people feel significantly less happy if they're not wearing something new. I mean, that's just bananas. You know, we were perfectly happy for... Thousands of years, well, we weren't. I mean, there were lots of unhappy people. But, you know, broadly speaking, we've, we've, we've used consumption as a sort of sop for, for somehow 
replacing the things that should make us happy in our lives. So, so would it be fair to say your mantra is um, buy less, buy better, and don't buy man-made, as in uh, with plastics, etc.? Yes, that's probably a pretty, pretty fair summation. I ha- hold my hand up and say, you know, Etorts is a fashion brand. We make two collections a year. Hammond & Co, in theory, is a fashion brand. We make two collections a year. But in the, in the 1960s, when, when Volkswagen developed the Beetle, they, uh, they had a philosophy within Volkswagen that every new iteration of the Beetle, they would try and make it better than the previous one, which was great. They would try and make it safer, more fuel-efficient, faster. But they would never cosmetically change it in a way that anyone that had bought the last Beetle felt bad about driving that car because that was a fantastic car that was the best car that they could design and build at the time mm-hmm. they just moved it forward a little bit so you know they wanted you to be happy to drive your old beetle but they wanted to make the new one better at the same time the american car industry had a philosophy every year we will make the car so radically cosmetically different that everyone feels like a prat for driving the old one so they will have to mm-hmm. buy a new one yeah. and those are two completely different i mean the both very valid models in the current world, and I'm the Volkswagen person. So, you know, if you look at Etort's, this shirt that I'm wearing that's probably three years old, the shirts that we make now are not radically different. They will be slightly different, but we always try and offer something that's slightly new, but we we definitely don't want you to stop wearing this one and this one because these were fantastic bits of clothing that, you know... You should get 20 years' life out of this. Um, so I've asked you what you most like about the fashion industry. Would it therefore be true to say what you least like is the commercialisation of fashion, making people feel bad about not buying something new because they're in vogue if they wear it? I do. I find that really increasingly troubling. I think we, we, we have to allow people to feel good about themselves in the clothes they own. Um, you know, particularly those people that are on social media a lot, and some people are on social media an awful lot, are being, you know, essentially bombarded with images of, you know, lifestyles that are nothing to do with real-world lifestyles that are, you know, that make them feel unhappy about the life that they currently lead, and and it's interesting because I don't know what the solution is, but we do. I think we have to fix that, you know, rummaging around, trying to find a better way of, you know, making a man-made fibre out of, you know, discarded plastic bottles is sort of fiddling while Rome burns. The big problem is we have to stop people wanting so much of this stuff. We can consume things and feel proud about it. And that's what, what I'm trying to do with community clothing is is make that sort of affordable. It used to be that we could all sort of afford the good stuff that was made here, but because all the volume has disappeared elsewhere, all of those great factories got smaller and smaller and smaller, and now this good stuff is only available to people with a lot of money. And that's wrong. You know, We should all be able to buy good things that last and that we can feel proud to buy. It's, you know, Nobody is going to feel happy in the long run buying rubbish that they know is supporting awful working practices, terrible polluting industry. 
we can feel really proud to own a Sheffield spoon. Like, this makes me really happy. This plate makes me really happy because it's made by... I know how this is made. I could visit this place and I could... I know how good the people are at doing this. And I know that they're going to work every day and come back and feel happy that they've made something amazing. And, you know, I think that is something really, really important. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast will be... uh... Uh, delighted and proud that uh, that you, Patrick, are, are trying to bring back to the UK all of those things in the world of fashion and tailoring and rescuing factories that might otherwise go and bringing back quality in British made. Um, what we're going to do now is the, the happiness survey, um, the workplace happiness survey from Engaging Works. Question number one. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? Yes, I do. I definitely feel rewarded. I mean, not financially, but emotionally. Ten. And in terms of them financially, the the view that you have from the outside is that you get people in your world who are amazingly well-paid, supermodels and designers and da-da-da-da-da. It, mm. is, is that a, a misconception? Is it just the very few that the, are making loads well, of money? Well, I could be making loads of money. You know, I, my, the business that I run at Debenhams is very, very successful, and we make a lot of money. But what I do with that money is put it into community clothing and Cookson and Clegg, which soaks up most of it currently. So I choose to be less well-off in the short term I mean, I may never get that money back, but it makes me happy to be doing something that I feel really proud of. Good. Good. Okay, ten. So, next question. Next. Do you feel recognised when I do something well? I don't know, because I'm I'm sort of, I'm responsible for recognising whether I do things well. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that I've, I've, I've won, I've won about the biggest award I could win in my industry. Um, in 2010, I won the Menswear Designer of the Year Award at the British Fashion Awards, which is the sort of Oscars of, 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 of our industry. So for that, yes. I've also been, I've, I've also been uh, I was awarded an honorary doctorate two years ago uh, by uh, Harriet Watt University, which felt amazing. And this also, I mean, Harriet Watt is a, you know, is a former technical institute it's, you know, it's the sort of intersection of art and science, and it felt like the sort of perfect place to be recognised by for what I was, was doing. And Glasgow Caledonian made me an honorary professor a couple of years ago. And I'm, you know, I'm also a, 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 an ambassador in residence, or a leader in residence at UCLan, which is a former Preston Polytechnic, now UCLan, University of Central Lancashire. So, yeah, I guess, I guess outsiders... Like, think that I'm doing a, doing something worth passing on to other people because I'm asked to, you know, I, I do a lot of I do a lot of um, lecturing to students. So, yeah, and, and I mean, you, not instantly, but you know, and, and broadly, people are sort of thinking, well, he's doing all right. So, what are you going to put? I'm going to put about a a, a, a a seven or an eight. I'm going to put a okay. seven. So, do you feel you are uh, recognised when you do something well? You are going to go seven because part is because I'm not good at recognising and 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 enjoying moments when I've done something well. So, I'm only going to give it a seven. Do I have enough information to do my job well? Well, I think again, it's all it's 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 all into the unknown. I think you know. It, 
it's funny because I'm a sort of a fashion designer and and an entrepreneur, and I sometimes sort of being an entrepreneur, you're doing something that that hasn't particularly you know something like community clothing, which is a completely new model. You know, we're trying to create a model that democratizes all the good stuff in the way that you know cheap fashion democratizes fashion. We're trying to change the whole sort of complexion of this thing. So it's new. So there is, you know, you're, you're, you're just, you're, you have to imagine something different. So, you know, the information, I can see, I can see this business in the future. I think, again, sort of entrepreneurs, I don't know if this is the case, with, but you have to be able to imagine. I think, you know, it's creative. You have to be able, I can imagine what community clothing looks like in 20 years' time. I can physically see it. I can see the buildings and the lakes and the complex and the staff and the staff and the, all the great stuff. I can see it. And, and so, you know, and then I have to drag everyone else through it. So sort of the information doesn't exist. So, I mean, I've got as much information as, as could be had. I'm going to give it seven again. So the question is... <laughs> the question is, do you feel information is openly shared with you with work. I can think of two people that don't like openly sharing information when it's bad information, but otherwise, um, yeah. I mean, we, 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 as, a, we as a business, we, 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 Monday mornings, we have, like everyone across all the businesses, we all get together and we have a chat about stuff and everyone goes through their things because we're all working, we're all working in the same kind of industry. We share a lot of resources. The factory works for community clothing. It works for torts, you know, everything. So we do, we sit and we, we chat and I, you know, and again, we try and foster an, an atmosphere of, of, of sharing. And I think we're getting there. How, um, and how are you at handling bad news? I'm good at handling bad news. I would much rather hear bad news. You know, stuff goes wrong. You know, I, I know stuff goes wrong. And, and for, the, for everybody's best efforts, things will always go wrong. And, you know, sometimes things go wrong for you know, reasons of not doing things as well as you could do. But most of the time, things go wrong because that's how the world is and stuff comes at you. And, and you just got to deal with it, you know. And I'm, I'm very, I'm, you know, I've always been somebody that's good with dealing with bad stuff, you know, just fix it. So I like to think that, I, I, you know, yeah, there, there are a couple of people that I just really wish, just, just I'm not going to bite your head, just, just tell me the bad stuff early, I don't want to find it out three weeks later. But um, I think they're pretty good, my okay. team. I'm going to give them eight. Are you empowered to make decisions? <laughs> I am empowered to make decisions. Um, I mean, really, I, it, I own 70% of the company. So ultimately, I'm the owner and the boss and everything. But, you know, I also am very aware that my you know, good friends, and the other shareholders of, you know, my old boss, I've got, you know, I've got a, 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 you know, a small team of shareholders, and I, you know, and I like them all, and their money, you know, I, I want to treat it with respect, and without their input, it would never have happened, so I don't feel like I'm, oh, it's all my thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm mindful that they are there, and without them, it wouldn't happen, so I, but, but they're, they're very, very good, they, you know, they, 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 they will steer, and we will have good conversations about things that we're doing. Um, but they very rarely tell me that they 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 don't like things that I'm thinking of doing. And they've been, you know, they could all have been quite rich by now, but they've allowed me to sort of double down. And you know, the factory 
and community clothing are long-term things. And I think in the long term, they will be big things that not only make us feel very proud, but actually will, will make them a bit of money. And, and how about the people that work for you? Do you think they feel empowered to make decisions? I, I hope that most of them do. I'm just trying to think, do they feel empowered to make decisions? Yeah, I think they do. I want them to make decisions um, because, you know, the decision-making is, is tiring. You know, I don't want to have to make every decision in the company. I want people to feel like they, you know, I've hired people. And again, I think when, when you start a business, most, you know, most, most entrepreneurial businesses start with less, you know, unless you're very lucky, if somebody comes in and says, right, have 50 million quid and go and do this. Um, in our industry, that doesn't tend to happen. I mean, there are a lot of vanity fashion brands where they do that. But, you know, we've started, we've had to hire junior people. We've hired people straight out of universities. Um, they, you know, being, be, feeling empowered to, to take decisions, I think, partly comes with experience. So now I have a lot more decision takers within my business. Um, but, you know, I want, I want the, you know, the younger people not to feel too nervous about just doing something because, you know, I don't want to make every decision in the business. I am completely empowered to okay. make decisions, so I'm giving that 10. ten. Do I feel trusted? I do feel trusted. I mean, I think, again, I think I've proven that my instinct is, 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 is largely good. Um, I mean, it, I'm, I'm, I'm not motivated by money, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated by making a business a success. So I think, you know, a successful business has to be profitable. But I'm, and I, I hope my shareholders maybe aren't listening, but I'm not, you know, I'm not motivated by making, like the, you know, if we wanted to make, as a, as a business, if we wanted to make the most money, we would, we would just take Debenham's money and not do the other stuff. Mm. And then, you know, I could probably work 50 days a year and... You know, like half the other Debenhams designers have houses in Ibiza and all that sort of jazz, but that's not what motivates me. Motivates me, and happily, my shareholders are a balance. And I think the long view. I mean, I'm I'm a great lover of of strategy board games. Uh, there's a sort of weird subset of nerdy German strategy games, and and we used to play them at university, play them at Leeds, and played them at Oxford, and. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much a long, a long game person. And, you know, I think we're going in the right direction. And it doesn't be like it's not hugely financially rewarding right now. But I think I feel the world is moving in a certain direction. I think, you know, you feel the wind of very big change about, you know, consumption and plastics and really big things. You know, Pandora's box has been opened there and mm -hmm. it's not going to be closed anytime soon. And. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going long, and that's, that's always been my, my sort of way. And the reason that we have those two questions is the empowerment question is really about are you, are you allowed to do things within the structure of your organisation? So does the organisation allow you to make decisions? Trust is about do your shareholders or does your manager actually trust you to execute yeah. the empowerment that you should have been given. Yeah. Um, so I would expect you to score, as you scored high on empowerment, I'd expect you to be high on... I'm going to give it 10. They do, I think they trust me. I know they trust me. Um, there we go. 
Do I have the resources I need to do my job well? No, absolutely not. Um, you so know, again, you I think well, you know, we 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 need more we need more bodies. We need we need more hours of the people that we've already got. You know, we could do we could do with having a bit more cash in the bank because not having cash means you're making decisions based on preserving cash and not doing the best to be profitable or move things forward. So you know, you're. You're, we're constrained. We're constrained enormously. If we had a big chunk of money, we could move things on enormously. But we spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time worrying about cash. So if you wanted to, you could sell 19% of your shares, mm. still have 51%, mm. and have a lot more cash in the business. Yeah. So why? Because raising money takes a lot of time. <laughs> And, and it's, it's something I'm not really, it's not, sort of not really expert at. Um, if you want to fix that for me, uh, I'll make you a nice suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are you going to score? I'm going to score it. Look, I have great people. I just, we're constra- we are constrained. I'm going to give it a three. Okay. Do, your view, do, you, do I feel my views are heard at work? I do, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm in a fairly unique position there. Do I feel, well, you know what? Do, the question is, do I feel the organisation cares for my well-being? Well, I mean, the shareholders certainly care about my well-being. Um, do you care about your well-being? I do care about my well-being. You know, I, I, well, I, you know, I try and do things that, that give myself a bit of a break. I mean, I, I was on holiday last week and I didn't look at email at all. I just didn't look once. And I, that's taken a lot of time to get to that point. And again, it means that, you know, I trust the people in my organisation that, you know, I would get a text message if something really disastrous happened, but nothing did. And I think that's usually the way. Um, I, you know, one of my shareholders said to me, you know, you just need to pay yourself more. <laughs> I think that's probably true as well. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that the rest of the organisation... And, you know, it is, it is, again, it's a sort of lonely and you're carrying a lot of responsibility, especially in a business like ours where, you know, it's a, essentially it's a one mature business, two mature businesses and three startups. And, you know, the responsibility for all of that, it's quite, a, it's quite a lot. And it does, you know, it does weigh on you. And sometimes I feel, you know, that people could just be, you know, just own decision making a little bit better and just be, you know, and then sometimes just just stay an extra half hour and get something done. So, you know, I I I, I think if you asked them they would care, but I think sometimes, you know, the actions are slightly different. So okay. I'm gonna say I'm gonna sort of give it I'm gonna give it a middle, a five. Do I rarely feel depressed, anxious at work? Um I do rarely feel is ten rarely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel. De- I certainly don't feel depressed. Occasionally, I feel anxious. I mean, right now, you know, I'm. I'm. Do I feel anxious? You know, I'm. I'm concerned, but I don't think I feel anxiety. I mean, anxiety is a is a is a bad thing. It's a it's an awful condition. And you know, I had an ex girlfriend who did feel anxious, despite being incredibly brilliant. Um, I don't feel anxious, and I certainly don't feel depressed. I feel buoyed. Work, you know, is a is a is something I look forward to. Mm-hmm. So, so you're scoring. I'm scoring myself ten. I don't. I, I rarely feel, feel depressed or anxious. 
Do you, yes. Do, the question is, do I feel I do something worthwhile? I absolutely do. I, I'm, 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 yeah. Okay. I'm very proud of what I'm doing. Also, I'm very proud of my, like, you know, my telly show that makes people happy as well. I mean, it's, it's funny we're talking about happiness, and it's, it's, um, it was described by no greater purveyor of general kindness than the Daily Mail as being the kindest show of, on television. And, oh, that's nice. You know, we had a, it, funny, we had, a, we had much higher engagement on social media than we've ever had before. And it might be because Joe Lysett, who is a new presenter of the Sewing Bee, is just much more active on Twitter and, 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 uh, and Instagram than Claudia uh, Winkleman ever was. Um, but also, you know, we landed, the show was transmitted right in the middle of peak Brexit misery. And lots of people were, were sort of, this is an hour of kindness and warmth and, and, and sort of, you know, collectivism and, and shared niceness. Um, and, and, and people really, there's no, with, with the almost nothing negative about our television show, which I think is an astonishing thing, because, mo you know, most people find... You know, there are lots of people who like to find awfulness in the world, and mm -hmm. you know, and they're they're the most vocal people on social media. Mm -hmm. And you know, we we um, we're we're very proud of making a show that is just warm and kind and embracing and celebratory. Um, and um, so even you know, so I feel very proud of that too. Uh, so I'm giving myself a ten for feeling proud. How likely am I to recommend your friends and family to work at my organisation? Well, I mean, my sister works for me, and I don't know if I recommend it. <laughs> she does it. No, it's getting better. Um, how likely am I to recommend? I would. I would. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think people. Most. Almost everybody that works for me feels like they're 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 doing something really good, and and. Yeah, I think so. I'm going okay. to give it nine, because I think ten is just silly there. Do I feel that I'm treated with respect? Yeah, I absolutely do. That's a ten? That was a ten. Do I enjoy my job? I do. It's a ten. Well, is it a nine? I mean, I could enjoy it. I, I, could, I can envisage ways I could enjoy it slightly more. How? If we weren't so skint. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah. Uh, do I feel I have a good relationship with my line manager? Well, I don't have a line manager. So it's either yourself or it's your shareholders. It's me or my shareholders. Um, and I have good relationships with both, I think. I think I'm not unduly hard on myself. I feel like I'm doing not a bad job, and I think the shareholders agree, so I'm going to give myself a nine there. Do I feel I'm being developed? Yes, absolutely. I think, again, I think one of the things, you know, my, my education has taught me is that I can, you know, I can take responsibility for, for, for educating myself. And I, you know, I'm, 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 I do find time to read. I find time to, you know, I find time to develop my own thinking on the area that I'm in. And again, I think, think the time at Oxford taught me to be reflective and to take time to, to think things through and assimilate information and, you know, I think if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to, you have to see how the world is shifting. 
even in something that is you know not obviously sort of it's not obviously sort of entrepreneurial like you know, the world of how we as 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 people dress how we consume clothes all of that is constantly shifting and and you know and 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 i you know and i i spend a lot of time thinking about that i mean a lot of the things that i've said today have been things that you know i have spent a long time thinking about and 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 yeah i i've got limitless opportunity to continue to develop myself so uh, I'm going to give myself a 10 for that. Do I feel happy at work? I do. You know, I, 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 I love my job. And uh, um, I'm going to give myself 10 for that as well. Good. So that's the last of the 0 to 10 questions. Oh, and now we, we get have... into um, a question about what three changes would improve your workplace happiness. So you need to type in here the three things. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realise it's going to be so difficult. It makes you think. It does, but, uh, you know... I like and hopefully to... at the end of it, you'll go away I've thinking, been... there are some things that I really should do to improve my workplace happiness. So what would be number one? Right. I mean, I think there are... It's funny, I, you know, in, in all organisations... So I, I, read, I read the Steve Jobs biography, the Isaacson Jobs biography, and Jobs has this brutal theory about... You know, A players. Have you read it? Uh, I have. Yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, it, 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 some of which makes sense, and you can understand how the business was so successful in its in its time. I I'm not that brutal, but I want to. I've I've worked I've I've, I've at certain periods in certain of the businesses. I've worked with people who I don't think shared the joy in doing the work. I'm very fortunate that m almost everyone in the business shares the joy in doing the work and, and love it. And, you know, only everybody is, again, you know, go to business school, you understand people are motivated by different things. Everybody, you know, you do that test and it shows what motivates you and it does that spiky thing. I can't even remember what the hell it's called, but it's, you know, it's, it's instructive and it's instructive to do it on yourself. There are a couple of people that if... That, that, that whose attitudes in work need to change a little bit or they need to find a job that is more suited to them and makes them happier. I want, you know, I, I would like to think that everyone, I want everyone to be happy doing the work. So there are a couple of people, I think, if I can, and I've seen the transformative effect it has to remove somebody who isn't, you know, who isn't pulling in the right direction. Um... And so, I don't know how to I don't know how to put that into words. Everyone, a lover of the work, engaged. No. Yeah. yeah, there, there we go. In everyone, engaged, <laughs> engaged in, in the engaged. Everyone, engaged. There we are. Okay, that's number one. That's number one. Number um, money. Because oh. you said there was so much that you wanted to do. Um, More money to achieve what you want. So if we, were, I mean, if we were better financed, it would, yes, it would make me happier. I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, I think also, I mean, I, if everyone was engaged and we had the money, what else would then make me... 
We used to have such a great studio. I used to have a studio on the river at Wapping, looking out across towards Canary Wharf. I, it essentially was like being in New Jersey, looking across to Manhattan. It was just, it was extraordinary. Mm. Um, Quite often what people say is, as well as um, financing is environment, so to your point about office. Another one is about hours worked and flexibility and too many or fewer or... I don't mind. I mean, I, I think I've got my I think I've got my hours at a sensible time, and um, and I'm now taking holidays, <laughs> which I didn't really do for a long time, um, and you know, and I pay myself enough to be, you know, happy. Yeah, I think the environment. I think you know, having worked in a really brilliant space. And you know, for financial reasons, we move to a less brilliant space. I'm going to put more wonderful workspace. There we are. That's three things. Great. They're so the three things that would make you happier are um, everybody who's engaged in yeah. what you're trying to do, uh, more finance to drive things more quickly uh, and to have more impact, and lastly, uh, your workspace to improve your workspace. Yeah. Um, I don't have a bad workspace, but yeah. I, you know. I've had better. So what we do now is uh, we go through a number of filters so that we compare your workplace happiness to the global average and also to people that look like you, i.e. your age, your gender, etc., yeah. etc. Et so we just need to go through these questions And where does that data quickly. come from? You've collected that. So this data comes from uh, tens of thousands of people who've completed the survey over the last two years from all over the world. So we've got data from over 130 countries. So these are really quick questions. You just want to go through your gender. What is my gender? I am male and identify as male. Well done. I am... My age is 45 to 54. I don't want to be in that bracket. Well, you don't look in that bracket. Am I management or non-management? Gosh, is that a trick question? I'm going to put management. management. So this job is, this, this questionnaire is set up so that anyone in the organisation at any level can, can, can do it. Anybody, yeah. anywhere in the world. So now you need which to... Which job which... from this list most reflects what I do? Because, um, I mean, I'm chairman, CEO. I think I probably am going to put retail, am right. I? You can do, yeah. It's um, lower else? down if you want to go retail. What am I? What else is there? Next, which country do I live in? Is the United so we know through this which are the United Kingdom places, yeah. So what we will now find out in about ten seconds, yep. is how you, Patrick Grant, compare to other people in terms of your workplace <laughs> happiness. You have Does it have a drum roll? Oh, there's a weird crunch in the numbers. Bong, bong, bong. It's thinking hard. Oh, yeah. 863 out of 1,000. Yeah. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's very, very good. The global average today is... 654, and my industry average is 635. I'm amazed that the retail industry is... Anywhere near 635 out of... I mean, it's a tough old industry at the moment. So That's all right. Typically, retail is in the bottom quartile of is industries. It? Yeah. 
and in part that's because, as you said, it's going through a tough time. How does manufacturing fare? Manufacturing is middling. If yep. you'd have gone for uh, creative design, uh, that's higher. Yep. So that's in the top quartile. Yeah. So what's been interesting is depending on how you graded yourself, whether you see yourself as a, a retailer, a manufacturer, or creative, you would have got very different comparative scores. Yeah. But what's fascinating from this now is we can tell or see where you are happiest and least happy. So you are uh, you score highly for reward and recognition, for empowerment, you're a hundred percent. Uh, for well-being, you're high. For instilling pride, so having pride in what you do. Job satisfaction, you're high. The one area where you're lower is, is information. Uh, when you were talking about having the information to do your job well and others having information. And then we have a number of matrices. And these matrices uh, are to try and help you understand where in the workplace you score above the global average and above your industry. And the first one, and the most important one, is on well-being. And your well-being is very good. You're, um, uh, you scored 10 on the anxiety question, as in you're rarely anxious. You're above both the industry and you're above global. If you score poorly on this, we take you off to take the um, well-being assessment with the NHS. Okay. Um, but you score How very poor highly. is poor? Typically, if you're below 7, we, we say you ought really? to think okay. about doing the test. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, the question is, do you rarely? I mean, yeah. I mean, I rarely, but occasionally, but yeah. yeah. So, and the next one is uh, it's called the stickiness index, and yeah. this rates how likely you are to either stick with what you're doing or leave what you're doing. And as you can see on the stickiness index, again, you score in the upper quartile. You're an enthusiastic remainer. You love what you <laughs> how, do. How ironic! <laughs> you're above the global uh, and the industry score. We do get some people, though, who are determined exiteers. They really don't like what we're doing, and we yeah. recommend that they find another job, job. which we can help yeah. them with. The next index is um, apostles and anarchists, and this is people who are uh, very uh, pro and active in terms of their support of their organisation. And then we have anarchists who um, spend all of their time complaining about where they work and what they do. And actively trying to do something about it, because you've got Marta at the top who presumably just grumbles and gets on with it. You find that there are, so martyrs tend to be people that work, say, in the NHS. Um, they, uh, they wouldn't leave because they're so committed they to the it. NHS, yeah. but they wouldn't necessarily recommend friends and families to <laughs> right. work there. Yeah. And then, bizarrely, we get individualists, and um, they tend to be bankers and lawyers, and um, uh, they, they uh, wouldn't recommend, uh, um, sorry, they, they would recommend working where they are because they earn lots of money, but they don't particularly enjoy it. So there are a whole set of things that, uh, that make up these different boxes. But yeah. you, you are an apostle for what you do, which comes through loud and clear. We've then got a matrix on career development. So we look at the questions around your career development, and you feel that you are well-developed and being developed. So again, you sit above the average. We then have a, an index on inclusiveness, how inclusive you feel. And again, uh, you're highly included in what you do, and you sit above global and industry. We then have an index that looks at empowerment, and you're off the chart for empowerment. You are completely empowered in your working life, and you sit well above other CEOs uh, globally uh, and in your industry, which is retail. And then we have an index on sense of purpose. Um, and sense of purpose is about... Do you feel that you do something worthwhile? Can you change the world? 
and again there because of all the brilliant work that you do in reviving uh, British fashion manufacturing and uh, your community project uh, you are uh, on both questions 10 out of 10 and again you score way uh, higher than other people that look like you now if you signed into the site you could go deeper on every single question you get the comparisons etc but what this says Patrick Grant is that you're very very happy in your job and clearly enjoying it um, and I've got two last questions for you. First is, what song makes you happiest? Oh gosh, this is difficult. I love music. Um, I don't know. I, I, some, I, what am I listening to a lot at the moment? I don't know. This is too difficult. Um, this is the most difficult question so far. Um, lots of songs make me happy. I've got a list, actually. I'm going to defer this by, 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 by skirting around it. I have a list. There, is, there was some research that came out a couple of years ago that said that hearing songs that you liked was, was helpful if you were suffering from sort of debilitating mental illness, sort of Alzheimer's or any degenerative mental illness. So I started creating a list, and I, call, I can't remember what it's called, the list, but it's full of all my favourite songs. So I have a list, but it's about... 200 songs long and to pick one I mean there are melancholy ones in there that I like listening to even though they're definitely miserable um, I had to do a thing for Radio 4 I had to pick a song and so I, I, picked, I picked a song that I would want to pass on to other people which was a Radiohead song because I really liked Tom York and I've worked with him he's amazing <laughs> The song I chose was uh, crushed, packed like sardines in a crushed tin box. But I like lots of different radio. I mean, I like lots of music. My dad was really into music. I don't know. Maybe something ravey. I was a big raver. <laughs> and then the very, very last question is, if you were to nominate somebody to take uh, the Workplace Happiness Survey, who would you nominate? Well, I'd nominate my sister to do it because... Um, because she's very important to me, and her happiness is important to me, and she works with me. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that's why. And when you take the survey, you can share it with other people, if you should want to. Yes. So, uh, would you like your sister to share with you uh, her results? Yes, I would. Very good. Patrick Grant, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to an icon of the British fashion tailoring industry. Uh, thank you for all you're doing to revive manufacturing in the country and so much more, uh, and I wish you continued happiness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.